Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. Today, our guest is fundraising intelligence and strategy trailblazer, Josh Burkholz, CEO of BWF, author of Fundraising Analytics, Using Data to Guide Strategy, and chair of the Advisory Council on Methodology for Giving USA. We caught up with Josh at his home in Minnesota. Thanks for being on the program, Josh. We really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks, Jay. I know this is an opportunity to talk to you maybe a little beyond the scope of what you've been presenting in this series, maybe what you've been talking about generally. And I thought it might be an opportunity to also learn a bit more about how you came to the place where you are in the field and more particularly how you approach the work that you do. Uh, maybe we can start really early. I'd, yeah. I know you began with a career in music. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you came to be involved in music? Well, I, I certainly tried to call it a career. Maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement. Uh, I don't know. I, I did study music, I, voice and uh, church music, and um, and I was going to be a composer. And then I thought, you know what, I'm not going to be able to <laughs> be employed. And I wanted to get married. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll get a master's in nonprofit management first. I thought maybe I could manage an orchestra or an opera or an arts organization. Um, and through that, I got my first fundraising job actually for the arts at the University of Minnesota, which I thought, I'll take this because I get free tuition and I could take more music classes. Little did I know, uh, like with anybody that you talk to in this profession, um, that my growth would have been changed by the actual work in the fundraising. Um, I learned a lot. There was great people that stuck their necks out for me. I think of Mary Hicks, who was a, um, a fundraiser at the College of Liberal Arts at the time, the director of development there. She pulled me aside after doing a graduate school residency where I wrote a fundraising marketing plan for um, uh, the, the band program and the marching band at the university. She's like, Josh, you've got a future in fundraising. You don't know it, but I'm putting you on the payroll. You can't leave until you find something better. <laughs> and I just think about her saying that to me or others, you know, Randy Bunny, who a lot of people know in the research field, who took a chance um, on uh, on some of the predictive science before anyone else did. Said, hey, Josh, you've got a proclivity. Why don't you do that? So for me to take any credit for the growth, I'd, I'd have to share that with all the people like, hey, why don't you do this? I'm like, all right. And maybe I just blindly... Uh, soldiered in. Um, but it's been really a fascinating start and a journey. And, and um, I love the I love the career path that I've been on. But you you haven't left music out of your life. It's still a, a huge piece, isn't it? It is. It really is. Um, I, I do write a lot of music and it might be nerdy, uh, kind of nerdy, but I'm actually a, a nerd about hymnody. I have old hymn books from the 1800s, uh, from the 1900s. I, even further back than that, I write hymns, um, uh, the music for it. But I also do perform a fair bit uh, on different instruments. Uh, may, lately, it's been mainly the bass guitar or the upright bass, but I'm known to pull out a French horn or trumpet now and then. And um, uh, I don't sing as much as I used to, maybe the, the odd wedding or, or funeral 
funeral or whatnot. Um, but it's something I keep doing. I, probably the writing of church music is probably the main way I pass my time. Now, I know you study composition as well as, as play, but you also study conducting and perhaps you do some conducting. One seems relatively solitary. The other, at least from the outside, looks like the opposite. Yeah, what do well, they bring to you? <laughs> well, I could tell you that nothing is better for public speaking than conducting. Now, it's an odd thing, but I, even if you don't plan to be a conductor, First of all, you're standing up in front of a bunch of musicians that are looking right at you and people that know better than you, at least some of them will think that and some will, will, won't. And you have to be able to talk to a whole group but also connect with people individually. Mm -hmm. I realized that to, to know cues, to, to make that, that trombone player think that you're only looking at him when he comes in or that tuba player that you're only looking at her, whatever it is, what are, um, the strings and so forth, connecting with people individually while also talking with a group. I thought about that when I first started doing public speaking in our own sector. I'm like, this is like conducting. I'm talking to the whole, whole group, but each person has to feel like I'm talking to them. I need to be genuine. I need to be real. But more important, I need to be useful, that the purpose for my being here is valuable um, so that the musicians aren't just looking down at their stand. They're actually looking looking up. Um, composing, I think that's where some of the my, it's actually a lot like when I've built predictive models, it's a lot like composing. There's ultimately formulas and methods to it, but every single project requires creativity. So they m might not seem related at all, but they're very close to two aspects of my history of this profession. It's just speaking a lot and doing data science. Um, and it's fascinating how they're related. And maybe they're only related to me, but hey, it's working, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Well, data science is a field that I think many in the nonprofit sector are still learning the language. Uh, I don't mean of building models, but even learning the language about people describing building models. And you were, I don't know if it's fair to say you were fairly early in helping people in this world talk about those things. Uh, but it must have felt a little isolated at first. It must have been like being a solo player. <laughs> yeah. I think there's some truth to that. I I, I think when I first, um, it must have been 2001 or two, I know I'd met you before that, uh, even when I was a researcher and you've been innovating far longer than I have. But when I started to move in that, I think it was around 2001 or two, I might have the dates wrong because I left the University of Minnesota 2004 to go into consulting. Um, I think I played around the 99, 2000, and around 01 or two, they made a profession uh, where it was, that was my full-time role to be a data science scientists. The role names kept changing. I think it was data mining, then it was analytics, and I, I don't know what it was at the time. Um, but I would say when I first got in that position, I, I, my first thing was to reach out to all the other people doing the same thing at other universities, and I found no one. I really didn't. It wasn't probably for a couple more years where we started to see some people pop up. I think maybe Derek Brumman was over at UCLA. He's at UC San Diego now. I think, um, oh, who else were some of the other people? Um, Oh, shoot. I know Kate Chamberlain in 07, 08. We had Marianne. I was moving over from Datatel. A lot of the names that you're hearing at conferences now, they were they were just kind of getting started. I think Tarek Shah was pretty early um, over at Berkeley. And it was kind of fun. We suddenly had a cohort. But at first, I was calling for-profit people, talking to people at 3M and Black um, or Best Buy and Target, companies that were in my backyard in Minneapolis. Um, and, and it was cool. I mean, cool people that were nerds and suddenly our nerddom became popular and you know we rolled with it so it, it, now it seems like it's an explosion 
at least everyone's talking about it. And there are, of course, there's hiring within higher ed like crazy for people who are described as data scientists. Is that also making its way into the rest of the nonprofit sector? Are people starting to avail themselves of not just the language, but those approaches that you've been building and, and working on for years? Yeah, I'd say it's still kind of a slow build into very large institutions. Probably what I've seen more of is the growth of the kind of the paraprofessional services um, that supply, supply specific predictive science techniques. Um, there's probably a bigger growth there for the mid and emerging nonprofits. And I think there's a lot of confusion. And that's where I'm trying to still trying to maintain some focus on education across the all sectors. Because if you're buying and the company just says they're doing AI, what does that mean? Um, it, because some it's uh, just a dynamic algorithm. For others, it's actually machine learning. But how would you know the difference if you're an un, uh, uninformed consumer? So there's some aspect that we should all know what the different services out there and have some education, whether we're doing it or not. But in terms of the in-house uh, capabilities, it's predominantly in organizations that um, probably have mature prospect development and are on a major gift business model, unless it's applied to a very large uh, mass um, direct marketing engine. Um, so. I it's hard to say where it'll go. I think we're kind of wrestling with what the, the biggest value is. I'd love to see this sector of data scientists start to tackle bigger problems collectively, bringing our heads together. What are problems that we can solve in data? When I speak at, say, a grad school or something, and uh, let's say it's a master of science program in data science, so sometimes I'll guest speak or do a master's class, the, the questions that come to me are always the same types of questions. Should I focus more on deep learning or um, uh, or uh, uh, my R or my Python? Or It's all methods and technology questions. Mm -hmm. And I almost always counter with the same thing and say, you know, you need to figure out what sector you want to apply your new wizardry to and become a nerd about that sector. What's going to impress an organization better and make you more valuable a data scientist is to say, I don't know, let's say it's healthcare records. The way I see it, there's five big problems facing healthcare records today. Here's ways that data science can help solve those five problems. If you look at, like, let's take a Nate Silver, he's not well known. I mean, well, he's well known as a great data scientist, right? But the reality is he's passionate about baseball. He's passionate about politics. That's what drove him. And he had great scientists around him. There's some aspect of being a nerd about the domain is almost more valuable about the tool set because it'll fuel you to keep developing, keep innovating and finding solutions, even those that are not necessarily orthodox. Um, so I think that's where we're at right now is I think we need to focus as a group on what are big problems we can solve as individuals. How do I make my organization better rather than trying to fit into an identity around the methods that I'm using and where I find community with other data scientists around method? Let's go towards solutions. I don't know. That sounded soapboxy. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> no, no not, not at all. But, I, but it raises a question, which is, do we have, um, there are organizations that you've described that have the foresight and the resources to apply themselves to this purpose. Hopefully yeah. not just how, you know, what are the applications we're using, but why are we doing it? That makes sense. But is there an increasing kind of digital divide? In other words, between organizations that either didn't have that vision or didn't have those resources and those that did, especially in higher ed, in the same way that with major gifts, they either didn't see that they needed to do it or they didn't have the resources to do it. But in higher ed, they had the staff, they had the money. Are, are we finding that there's a separation then between different types of nonprofits? And is that going to be, um, are, are we going to see a, a flattening of that 
with the result of what's happening today or or an increasing uh, difference uh, of scale and impact uh, because of, of what's happening today? Well, there's certainly steep separation happening, but I'm not sure that the steep separation is primarily in the, the digital divide or not. And I'm, I'm trying to think openly about this. I think the biggest gap right now are those that have embrace really the major gift business model versus haven't. Um, if we think about somebody who does have major gift officers versus does, that's probably where you see the biggest plane of separation among uh, organization types. Then mm -hmm. when they have frontline, those that actually have supporting infrastructure for major giving is the next. And I would include in supporting infrastructure, anything that a fundraiser does that someone else could do, almost like the lowest cost biller, we've seen like prospect development and donor relations perhaps as the core roll-offs of a supporting infrastructure structure, but, um, but I would include some of the data science in that zone. But just having a research, even a prospect researcher, um, so a major gift program with a researcher versus not, there's a big delta. Now, those that have mature prospect development with data scientists versus not, I think we're talking more marginal growth. Now, that might seem like, well, what's the value then there? But I think we're talking 150 to 200 million rather than from 10 million to 550 million, which is five times. Um, so <laughs> um, a place from 10 to 50 million might be just on the nature of having a mature major gift program. But going from 150 to 200 million, it's still 50 million more, but that might be the data science pull. Um, so I I don't know if I'm answering the question real well. I, I, I'd like to see what all those deltas are. I think there's some contribution, but I think it's being smoothed out by the many outsourced providers meeting the, the core competencies. And that said, a lot of the innovation that's happening, we might have some Occam's Razor, uh, Occam's Razor issues where mm -hmm. it's a lot of cool stuff, but if we just made more calls, maybe we'd be better. Can we, is the proof there in what uh, all the companies, you know, and we're all trying to figure it out. I'm not faulting any company, um, but innovators, we try and try until we find something works and that's how innovation happens. Um, but sometimes the simple solution is right in front of you. So there's a whole lot of non-answer, but uh, at least you got a window into my thought process. Oh, well, and that's it. Yeah, and that window is open wide, which is what makes it so interesting. Because that means that means shut up, Josh. You're talking too much. No, I'm I'm thinking that the the amazing part about that is that I think maybe uh, perhaps some people are afraid of opening their own windows too wide because instead of you know welcoming the fresh air in, they're worried about what they might be um, letting the letting the oxygen out. That if they don't, it, it, for example, the calls you just mentioned, it, it would be easy enough with little infrastructure to simply make more phone calls. And as you talked about in your flash class, to not just make those phone calls solicitous, but to make them opportunities for discovery. Those are decisions that people make, and they can have a profound impact upon the kinds of relationships that people have. I mean, assuming you agree with that, I'm wondering yeah. what happens next. If we're at a point where the entire economy is kind of in a mess at the moment, but it may not necessarily be for as long as the last major economic uh, challenge we had uh, back you know, in 08, what kinds of things can and should organizations be doing, even if they're fearful of doing it, yeah. in order to open up that window, have those better conversations, and really be able to better position themselves to bring in more revenue to treat mission? Yeah, I... It reminds me of so many of the data scientists I meet that are in it for a while. 
they find themselves becoming fascinated with behavioral economics. How do I change human behavior? How come I've done all this science and people won't do this thing? Um, and so much of our work is at that human behavior change. And I think the reason is because human behavior is hard. It's hard to change. Like we have habits, we have all these things. And, and it's also vulnerable. Um, it's much easier to put a, a new dashboard together. Let's put a new ratings grid. Let's have a new weighted score. All these things, which are really brilliant ideas, but we keep running into this wall of, of people. <laughs> we're humans. Um, if it's as easy as making a few more calls, how come we're not making a few calls? I think we need to start embracing and opening up the window to who we are as people. Now, this sounds really wishy-washy. I hope, I hope people understand, like, why do we make the choices we make that don't seem to be in the best interest of our organization? How do we understand self-interest? What is it, What are the real headwinds? Can we evaluate some of those things, not just who's the best prospect to go see? I bet we've got that in spades. In fact, I'd say most prospect development programs are more mature than the ability to actually implement their prospect development work. How do we start thinking about human behavior in a different way? And some of the people that are doing that, I think they're they're starting to get onto it. I know we've seen from a leadership perspective, there's an aspect of character that when the leader is forgiving, has response, takes responsibility, has integrity and compassion, workforce engagement goes up. Um, we've seen trust and mid-management um, uh, have a much higher uh, work output as well. Um, uh, Caring for each other with donors. I mentioned being an authentic, um, uh, passionate about the mission and authenticity is what makes you a best fundraiser. Uh, but those things sound like, you know, fluff. Uh, I think we need to start putting hard science. Uh, how do people, why do people do what they do and how can we influence that? Um, so maybe I was a little bit esoteric, but I think that's the window I would open wide. Let's start talking about that. And I want to ask you about um, not just what we do, but the world in which we're doing it and particularly donors yeah, um, yeah. you've done a lot of work on that not just working with clients and not just giving usa but just you, you think about it in lots of different ways i know church is a big part of your life and yep, yep. Uh, getting people together for some kind of common purpose it seems at least statistically speaking like that's becoming increasingly challenging and, and over the past two decades we've watched kind of a you know, a, a, a decline in the percentage of Americans who are actively involved in giving in formal ways. I'm yeah. wondering if you are finding in you, you know, in your personal life, in your work life, your work as a consultant, yeah. the, the analysis you've done, if you're seeing some opportunities that we haven't fully explored for how to maybe use this moment in time to hit a reset button, not just with respect to the things we do internally as fundraisers and yeah. nonprofit folks, but to engage with the world around us, which has been disengaged with us increasingly over time. Yeah, you know, it's, it's such a good point. It, um, I mean, we've seen again and again, I mean, starting with donors, and I mentioned this, I, I've been on so many interviews with wealthy donors, that I, and I'll just ask them, what's it like to be a donor here? It's like, well, it's kind of lonely. <laughs> and like I had one who, this is a national charity and you know, it was a faith-based organization, but um, this donor, uh, very wealthy, and, and, and I said, well, tell me more about that. It's like, well, I can't really talk about it in my community because then, you know, I'm, I'm the wealthy person bragging about my money. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but, I, but they're in a different state from me. I just, 
who are my people? And I realize so often we say, who are my people? We, you know, we gravitate towards each other. We're better as humans, um, whether it's church or arts organization or the gathering. Um, I think that perhaps, uh, not that I'm, um, have the credentials to say this, but I feel like we've taken for granted the communities around us. And maybe this has given us an opportunity when it's taken away from us to see how important and valuable that is. Um, and I'm not saying get involved in, in a church or, or, or whatnot. Um, uh, but what I'm saying is that community gathering aspect of it. What we have seen uh, going back to giving is um, as religious affiliation declines, uh, there is an impact on secular charity, which is why I think it's relevant whether someone's religious or not, because people that are religiously affiliated, um, and this was in a Lake Institute study, give more to secular uh, charities uh, than people who are not religiously affiliated. And we're trying to dive into that. And, and, and what I'm finding is perhaps there's a childhood exposure to philanthropy that the secular charities are not doing as regularly as kids that go to their church or synagogue or mosque, they're seen giving, people are talking about it, supporting their faith community. Um, so I, I mean, to try to wrap this all up, um, in our current present situation, we're probably taking a for granted community um, and that's helping us to think differently about it. I think we'll embrace it more so. I think from that, um, by the multiplying effect of in community, we give more. Um, so I mean, as a takeaway from this, uh, Little tactics like virtual meetup groups or getting our donors together, national leadership councils, global leadership councils, uh, campus beautification fund council. I don't care what it is. People like us do things like this. I think that's something we should be paying a lot of attention to. Finding ways to bring people together. Yeah. 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 Um, you talked, in fact, about lasting effects in your flash class. You said that there are lasting effects of the, of the times that we live in. And mm -hmm. I think you were referring to, for example, people who lived through uh, different things, but uh, for example, Vietnam War era, or maybe it was you know, graduating the time of the economic collapse, or I'm sure the Great Depression. And there might be lasting effects, you were alluding to what might be the lasting effects of people right now, for example, people who would have been graduating in May, but now are not on campus. I'm wondering in what you were just talking about, are there ways that we can make the experience that people are having right now, make the yeah. lasting effects of that better for them and for us? Are yeah. there ways that we can positively I, impact what they are experiencing so that yes. they have a fuller, richer life, including a life with their, their work as, you know, yeah. as philanthropists? I think that's the best question to ask right now. Uh, for me to say I know the answer would would be false, but that's the question I hope everyone gets to. And I'm so glad that our conversation got there. What is it, if we've seen this happen before, what can we do about it? Um, how can we make this something special? I know it's so tough when things are bad. You know, We've got expressions like silver lining and, and whatnot. But I think there's a reality here that um, this is a test of resiliency. Um, it's a refinement, which will help build character. Let's em embrace that. I, I don't know the answer to how to do that. I, I'm thinking about you know my own kids who are in school. Um, my, my one daughter's a freshman in college, and, uh, <laughs> and this is her experience of her first year in school. What's that going to do to her? It's probably not as much as someone who's not going to get to graduate and so forth. Um, but I I think for all of us, we're going through this. It's so universally felt. That's what's so surprising about this. 
but I think we're all universally yearning for a solution to it and a solution that we can heal from it. Um, and I'd love to think about the healing right now um, by lifting up the positive, finding those that are helping, helping others, building community, and then celebrating the resiliency as we come out of it, um, whether that's organizationally or just collectively, just with our friends and family, you know, just thank your own family members. You know, we can do this. We're doing this right now. Look how great this, how close this has made us as a family. Or if you're by yourself, think about the friends that you're, you're connecting with in a virtual way to, uh, to have a lasting value and relationship out of it. Oh, I wish I knew the answer. And I wish everyone was asking that question. Um, and I think we'll get there. Thank you so much, Josh. Really appreciate yeah. your thoughts today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Jay. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.